Hey, Luke, how are you? Hi, friend. I miss you. I miss you, too. It has been too long. It has been. It has been. It's weird when we have, because I had a pretty busy week with work last week, so I wasn't able to text as much with you and our friends. And I feel like when that happens, a uh, part of me is dead inside. Yeah, all the good parts. So thanks a lot, young adults in Cincinnati. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, Cincinnati. Not racist anymore. Oh, so I'm drinking beer. What are you doing right now? Uh, I just finished an abnormally abnormally large glass of red red wine. There you go. Do you like wine? I love wine. I would be a, I would be a wine guy if uh, I didn't enjoy the other forms of alcohol so much. Wine's probably my favorite. Yeah, you know, um, me and my beloved will have a glass of red. Maybe okay. So let me rephrase this. Me and my beloved will have a bottle of wine. Maybe once or twice a week. I almost had a glass of wine, and that would have been way understating the case. <laughs> way <laughs> understating the case. <laughs> Shannon kind of loves her booze. Yeah, booze. He said booze, people. Shannon loves her booze. <laughs> booze. Sorry, I mumble my words sometimes. I apologize, everyone. Booze. Booze. Nothing else. Sound like you said boobs. <laughs> it did. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i feel like we're fully channeling homer simpson <laughs> or just like the worst parts of ourselves <laughs> i call it original sin <laughs> i call it podcasting moneymaker <laughs> speaking of which this episode of catching foxes is brought to you by churchmilitant.tv <laughs> oh man someone's got an interview with them soon we're very excited but i don't know if we can talk about it so yeah, he's mentioned it on his Patreon. Mafrad, uh, it was really funny. So what happened was he said, hey, what do you think if I reached out to Michael Voris and had him on the show? You know, people hate him or they're mean about him and all this stuff. And he said, but is he wrong? And has the, all the stuff with the scandal, has it proven him wrong? So he goes, I'm going to talk to him. And I want you to tell me what questions I should ask or if I should even talk to him at all. He's like, but I'm willing to ask hard questions. And then like an hour later, he sends a follow-up email. So Michael Voris's people reached out and said he'd love to be on the show. <laughs> so That's now Monday awesome. they're they're recording an episode. So if you're a Patreon listener or Patreon supporter of Matt Frad, I think that episode might just be a Patreon episode. Oh, what? the things you can do when that's all you do is podcasting. <laughs> Patreon.com slash CF. Patreon.com slash CF. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I was a Patreon supporter of his, and then Patreon... Oh, so this is weird. Patreon got, like, screwed up. Like, my Patreon... I wasn't able to log into my account. So basically had to delete my account. And the guy who I was who I was emailing goes, are you Luke from Catching Foxes? And, I, and then I responded with, I am. Are you a listener? And then he never said anything. And then I guess died inside. <laughs> Wait, are you Luke from Catching Foxes? I am. We're sorry. This call can't be completed as dialed. You fat podcaster, you. <laughs> I'm big boned. I'm big boned. Go it's back glandular. to your mother's basement. <laughs> I can't. She lives in a ranch. Um, it's a slab foundation. <laughs> they don't have basements out west. Uh, did you read... That article that basically saying some people are just obese and we need to just accept that fact. 
Like uh, who wrote it? I, I did not. I read a Huffington Post about a ten thousand word essay on fat shaming, which was interesting because I could identify with ninety nine percent of it. <laughs> this um, it might have been the same one, but I feel like that one wasn't so much fat shaming. It was one that talked about scurvy as one of the first examples. Of yeah, no, that was that was okay. about fat yeah. shaming. Well, yeah. no, it was, but I felt like it had more of like oh more, yeah, yeah, it definitely had like it uh, had the signs to back it up that like. Hey, some people are just overweight, and they are actually, according to every other sign but that, very healthy. But they're overweight. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about that article, so it was a Huffington Post piece. It was, about, it was a long one. It was about 10,000 words, I think. It was good. It was very good. It was good. That's the one that had the images of the women and men in different poses where mm-hmm. they decide. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons why I really, really, really like that is when you talk with fat people or are a fat person yourself, such as myself, everything that people do and think towards you comes through that lens. So, for instance, if you go to the doctor and you're complaining about something going on, they will always, always, always connect it to being overweight. Now, I'm not saying there are a whole host of things that, you know, carrying a large level of visceral fat contributes. However... You know, the article talks about how in the in the medical industry, the average doctor receives like something like 17 hours of nutrition training uh, in their med school. It's not to say that they don't keep up with it, you know, in their own reading and whatnot, but 17 hours out of all those years. And so when you think about it, um, they only relate to, number one, what they heard in med school. Oftentimes that stuff is outdated, especially with all the different diets and stuff that have crept up over the years. So long story short, doctors reduce everything to you better lose weight. Even if it, even if the problem you're coming to has nothing to do with it. Like one woman had like needed gallbladder surgery or something like that. And it, they just ignored her. And he's like, well, let me tell you what I ate for breakfast. She's like, shut the hell up and help me with this ailment. And I personally have found that all the time. People don't know how to, ah, oh, people don't know how to relate to you unless it's through that. All I'm saying is, Doctors, even when you're going for a medical condition that has nothing to do with overweight, over and over again, they just try to treat you for your obesity, and they don't even see anything else other than that. And then it is everything that the people related to in the story about, like, feeling ashamed and all that stuff. uh, I've definitely been there. Like, I remember reading a story about a black woman who was saying that when she's at work and they all go out to eat, she is super conscious about not eating fried chicken. Because one time she was out eating fried chicken and someone made a, well, of course you like fried chicken comment. And it like, and she does, she (laughs) loves it, but she's super self-conscious about it. And uh, this one woman in this article about fat shaming talked about how if she doesn't eat the free bagels at work, people will be like, good for you. Good for you for trying. And if she does eat it because everyone else is eating it and she hasn't eaten in, you know, 24 hours, all of a sudden people look at her with the judgy eyes, even though they're doing the very same thing. And I've been there. I've definitely been there. See, that's really interesting because I've never really experienced that. I mean, I'm sure I have. I definitely could stand to lose a couple of pounds. Um, Like what the article was really getting at was your eating habits and trying to build and like that we need to we need to emphasize good eating habits as opposed to body weight 
because one of the one of the examples that they gave was this one woman who was by like our uh, common measures extremely overweight, and I'd say like the majority of these people are much more overweight than we are. Just to be clear, I mean at least that's what I thought. Would you not agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. I mean, they singled out things like processed food and hype, um, added sugared food and all that stuff. Yeah, and 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 they talked about how like sometimes with like these certain with these certain diets that you do, it actually uh, ruins your like you you do like lose weight, but you hurt your metabolism or something and other things like that. And so they went into this one story about this like one woman who said she was barely eating anything at all, and her. And, like, her doctor was trying to encourage her to, like, you know, keep yeah. it up. And she said, if I wasn't overweight, if you take that out, it reads like I have an eating disorder, which is what she had. She just wasn't – she wasn't able to lose weight. And that's one of the things this article is trying to bring attention to is that some people just can't lose weight. Yeah, so in that book, um, The Obesity Code by Father, uh, father Dr. Jason Fung. Um, he talks about how when your insulin levels get so out of whack because of consuming a steady diet of you know, processed foods and high sugar foods and all this stuff, that your insulin resistance is so high that you're just saturating your bloodstream with insulin. Your body, um, he, he talks about like putting people on a starvation diet where they lose like 100 pounds and then you give them healthy, rich, good, normal food. He said they will gain almost every single ounce back as if it were predetermined within like a five pound ratio, something like that. And he said, it's no matter what you do. And if you overfeed someone they're you know, if you're trying to fatten them up for like uh, making weight for wrestling or whatever, after you hyper indulge, if you go back to normal eating, the weight will drop back to this level. He says, it's almost like we have a genetically predetermined level. And so his whole argument was for different bodies and body types, different diets will work. Fasting is a main thing, intermittent fasting, long-term fasting, all that stuff. But he said, but some people, because their, metabol- uh, their metabolism has a pre, almost like a preset weight, body-to-fat ratio, all that stuff, and it'll just snap right back to it. And so that's why so many people experience yo-yo dieting. The dieting works. It's just the moment you break off the extreme diet, your body is like, oh, my gosh, we're out of starvation mode. Gimme, 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 gimme. Let's get back up, people. Right? So he was talking about doing a handful of things, but he said about 70% of your weight loss or weight gain is genetically predetermined. He's like, it's a ballpark average. You know, nothing's written in stone, but about 70, I think he says 70% is genetics. So if you come from large families where everyone maintains a high level of body fat, regardless of what they're eating or doing, as long as they're not, you know, starving themselves in their bodies and breaking down, you know, muscle and bone to, to keep itself going. He says, you will be overweight. Or at least what we kind of estimate is overweight. So you can have physical fitness, but still be overweight. And so there's this kind of tension now in the medical community over what that means. And that's actually been going on for a while. I remember watching uh, 2020 where they had a... Um, 2020. Remember when... <laughs> I'm Baba Wawa. Remember when uh, ESPN used to show, like, aerobic shows early in the morning? Vaguely. Okay. So my mom was, like, super into that stuff. So there's always these aerobic shows, ESPN, ESPN2, something like that. And um, I remember 2020 did a whole show. I used to watch that obsessively, Dateline in 2020. And they had this, like, definitely overweight dude 
who was doing who was the head of all the aerobics classes at this one thing and it was featured on on espn and he's like he can do all of the physical activities we're talking about weights resistance you know all this stuff physical endurance but he does it with 20 pounds of body fat that he doesn't need right excess body fat but he hasn't lost the fat in years and years and years of diet and exercise all this stuff so there is a nervousness that we get when we constantly point at other people and say you're just a glutton and a lazy and i've experienced this in my own life when i went on the atkins diet i dropped a ton of weight and i was fanatical about it and you when been fanatical about a thing i never <laughs> uh, i hate you Anyways, um, antiwar.com go on <laughs> i haven't been on that website in a while the, your J R um, Tolkien face. Go on. <laughs> How dare you take the Silmarillion away from me? How dare you take the Silmarillion? It is a chronicle of elves. <laughs> but anywho, your your Indian film face. Go on. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So also my Atkins phase. You're obsessive with Apple phase. Go on. Yeah, it's still going. Uh, <laughs> the the I lost a ton of weight, and then the moment I got off the diet. Like, within two months, I had gained, like, half of it back. Like, within two months. Like, that's crazy. Because I lost a crazy amount of weight, and I kept it off for a long time. Then it snapped right back. And so there is elements of, I mean, I know I can lose weight. I know I can be more healthy. So I joined the Y. I've gone to the Y. My wife goes every other day. Um, turns out there's one about 10 minutes from my work that I can sneak off to. So I want to be healthy. I would love to be physically ripped. I would, you know, all that stuff. Thin, strong, lean, sensual, lukish. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if it's in my genetic cards all the way. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever be at a Like, I think for me, a healthy weight is probably, I could stand to lose about 50 pounds. And I think after that, which is, I mean, you know, I should, that's horrible that I'm that much, not that much overweight. But I think after that, there, I, it just looks weird. And I don't think there's much more weight I can really lose after that. Just looks weird. You mean you go full Al Roker? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. When he lost all that weight, I was like, I don't recognize this man. But he's kept it off. He did uh, lap band surgery or whatever you call it. Hmm. Uh, what do you call it? I mean, lap band is like the new thing, but he got his stomach stapled. He was one of the yeah. first mm. big name people to do that. Yeah, well, I think, like, the thing that I got from, like, that article was, like, if you just have healthy eating habits... The weight that you are is your healthy weight. Like, the weight that you'll be at, that's going to be your healthy weight. If you, like, mm. eat well and you take care of your body, like, you'll, like, exercise, do all those things. Some people are going to be a little bit heavier, but it doesn't mean that, like, they're, you know, out of shape. And they were saying that there's a lot of people who actually aren't heavy who are, quote-unquote, skinny and have good um, metabolisms who are horribly unhealthy and have bad cholesterol and diabetes and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, very good article. I uh, recommended that article. And I said, hey, man, I, I sent you an article in email. Um, it's really interesting. I, I said, you know, usually I'm not into, like, these articles about fat shaming because I think it kind of props up an unhealthy lifestyle. And that's always my fear with these things that are, like, fat people rights type stuff as a fat person. I know there's elements of unhealthiness. That's a part of it a choice kind of compulsion you know all this stuff and uh 
And the crazy thing about the article is this idea of like just constantly wanting to blame the person, even though it's mostly the food. And I'm not saying like, oh, this person is eating bad food. Eat good food. It's not like they're down in M&Ms. They're eating things that dieters have told them yeah. will help them lose weight. And it's burning out their insulin levels, right? And uh, so, and the crazy thing was, I told this person to read this article, and then immediately he just started making a bunch of fat jokes, just making fun of uh, someone that we knew that was overweight. It was a professor at Franciscan, just immediately. And I go, and I was like, looked at him, and I was like, wow. Wow, I'm literally telling you how this piece did a really great treatment on, like, fat shaming and culture and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and your first impulse was to make fun of fat people, of which I am in that camp. I just found it fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Turns out humanity sucks. So I killed that guy. I mean, I chopped him <laughs> into little pieces. I threw him in my, what do you call it, in the, in the boiler room in the basement where the furnace is. I Fargoed that shit. <laughs> I Fargoed it up and down. Oh, uh, man. I, I got some other t topics. Do you have some topics? Oh, man. I got so many topics. Oh, man. So many topics. So many topics. Dude, I can, I'll drop the price of these topics just for you. <laughs> what can I do to get you into my topic today? Sell me this pen. <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard that sales technique? You ever heard yeah, that? Like, sell me this pen. You know what I would say? You know, I've, I've thought long and hard if someone ever did that. You know what? Because uh, I almost became a car salesman. You know what uh, I would have said? Hmm. I would have said, I can't sell you that pen. And it'd be like, see, you don't deserve to work. And I go, because, brother, this pen sells itself. <laughs> huh? 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 Mine was, I'd be like, can you write me your number? I would, I would, I would love to call you sometime. Oh, you can't? Here's a pen for $5, you piece of crap. That's all I got. <laughs> you piece of crap. Salesman of the year right here. Sign me up, uh, everyone. Tons all of sales is a product of desire and supply and demand. Uh, do you ever feel like a lot of, like, people who work in um, in ministry are just too scared to go into sales? I think uh, they are in sales. It's called evangelization done poorly. <laughs> and how. Evangelization without the community, but all of the selfishness. Um, <laughs> but all the money. <laughs> um, so, Hans Rosen von Balthasar has this idea that Go on. I read about one time. <laughs> and so I'm going to act like I am an, an expert on it. It's from the book Prayer. And I'm staring at the book right now, and I feel like I should try to find this passage, but I'm not going to because this is the Catching Fox's way. <laughs> and from what I recall, <laughs> he says this thing, and it really, like, blew my mind, where he talks about how if you're open to life having meaning and purpose, there's no way that you can't be crushed by the, by the overwhelming on the lack of purpose within our culture. Can you say that again? That if you believe that life has meaning, that life truly does have purpose, if you're open to that idea, that there is no way that you can't be overwhelmed or feel the crushing weight of the lack of purpose within our culture. Man, that's intense. Right? And I, I think about that a lot ever since I um, read that line, and it just kind of blew my mind. And I, I, I think I feel that a lot. Within, I see within a lot of the movies that I watch. It's just like I feel like every, every film I watch, is ultimately about someone just trying to create their own meaning. 
and find their own purpose in life. And it, uh, or just trying to find strength within yourself to overcome these obstacles, to find your, you know, to find your greater purpose. And it, um, I think it's true that if you really are open to it, there's no way you can't help but just sit there and go, what's the point of any of this? I feel that a lot with the current scandals. Just that crushing weight of like hopelessness and helplessness and borderline despair. I don't know if it necessarily comes from the crisis itself, but the fact that the culture has conditioned us for that like lack of purpose. And for us, this in a weird way has become our purpose. And when bad evil men take that away and strip that out of us it's not i just kind of wonder if that's why so many i know so many people across the country in all different own dioceses very different cultural areas of the country who want to quit or are going to quit their job because they can't take it any 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 yeah anymore and i um i don't blame them and I don't think people really understand how difficult it is to work in to work for a Christian. I mean, okay, so just to work for a Christian organization in a post-Christian world—that's um, difficult in and of itself. Then you like add to the fact that the organization you work for is obviously horribly corrupt, which is what we are like realizing right now. It has its, it has its shining stars. It's got people trying to do good things, but there's some real evil and some real corruption going on within the church right now that some feel goes all the way up to the top. And then we exist in this, because we believe life has meaning, we exist in this culture that because we're open to it, and we're not going to define our you know, own meaning because we don't believe that's how it works, we're overwhelmed by this weight of life having no purpose or thing being pointless. Yeah. And I feel like this is – I feel like that's ultimately what's breaking everyone's spirit right now. Mm. Is if, like, if you had – I think if we still had a Christian culture – I think if this happened in the 80s, people would be able to persevere a little bit yeah. better because yeah. you still had this, you still had elements of Christendom. But I believe we're, I believe that's, that's completely over with now. And so that's the end of that. And that, that we can never go back to that. Like, that's gone. There's nothing we can do to change that. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I believe that, like, that can change, but I don't think we can, like, make things the way that they were, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm like, holy crap, we are so screwed. I mean, we're not screwed. I know what, what the answer is, but it is going to be incredibly difficult. And I, I just, I, I, I wanted to propose that. And the, the, this is just like my, this is an idea I'm trying to like work out. So I wanted to, pro, I wanted to propose that to you and just get your thoughts on that. Man, that is intense. So we live in a culture that has no purpose. Christ gives us purpose. We labor to give humanity purpose in Christ, and then we turn and see the very church that is the home of that purpose-driven life, <laughs> to borrow a phrase, uh, is 
undermined by the very people who should be in charge of it. Yes. And because we think life has meaning, we're more sensitive to the, the meaningless of life proposed by the culture and the need to define your own, your, your own, your own purpose. So I, I, I think yeah. like, um, um, your, you know, like average American just trying to like do their thing. I don't know if they give this much thought or if they like, or if they are like open to that or able to experience that, like, not that they don't have a desire for perverse, or they don't have a desire for a um, meaning, but they have a, either just within their own mind by choice or subconsciously accepted the fact that they have to find their own meaning and their like own purpose, and that's their life's work. And since we reject that, all that we're left with when things go to hell on our side is just this empty void of nothingness. Man, that is intense. I th- and that all came from that Von Balthazar quote. If you believe it's that like, life has a meaning and you cannot help but feel the crushing weight of its lack in our culture. Is that basically what he was? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find it really quick because I want to make sure that I, I get that right. But yes. No, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. Like if you live meaninglessness, then day after day is just as it should be. It can't be anything other than an endless succession of meaningless moments. And meaning is what I create, I make, or I impose on the world around me. But if that's true, meaning is created, not discovered, or not received. But we believe it's received. That I can't manufacture a meaning at the change of the uh, wind. And I invest my entire life, heart, sweat, soul to bring people into that meaningfulness while watching the clergy set the whole thing on fire. I have no doubt People are hemorrhaging from Christ Church because of that. I have no doubt. And I, let me read to you something that we received in the mail. You ready for this? In oh, the mail. I am. Okay. Prepare your heart. I sent it to you with a phrase, powerful. Since working in a chancery, my eyes have been opened wide to the human side of the church. The corresponding bankruptcy in our archdiocese and now, quote, the summer of scandal, end quote, have tested me in every way, shape, and form. Uh, then she says, your honesty has been refreshing. If you happen to know of any groups who are trying to connect diocesan officials that are trying to reform a dysfunctional chancery to, shocker, pray and follow the Lord's call, I would appreciate any leads you have. I'm also a big believer in community, and my recent interactions have shown me that chancery folk can be some of the most lonely people and in need of spiritual renewal. Wow. Yeah, it's 100% right. And this is at an important Catholic diocese. She works in Catholic education for that archdiocese. And she is scandalized by the bankruptcy of faith, by the chronic loneliness of her lay and probably clerical employees. Just shocked. And no one out there is saying, hey, I hear you. I want to help. We have good leaders, good shepherds, or whatever it's called. Right? We got stuff for the clergy. I think it probably starts with, I think every diocesan employee needs to go to Healing the Whole Person with Bob Schutz's group, the JP2 Healing Center. Mm-hmm. I think it probably should start there. Maybe get a warm glass of tea and sit down with <laughs> Sister Miriam. 
<laughs> yeah, just like I just like when I see her next, which will hopefully be at the Seek Conference. I believe she's going to be there. I I I I just want to hug sister. She's amazing. Can I just have a hug? I'm probably going to start. I'm just going to start like weep while she hugs me. Be like, it's been such a summer. It has. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I um I can't I can't find that quote. I've already had a beer, so I'm like, I can't do can't do two things at once. Um, uh, what book does that come from? So our own listeners it's, can kind of look it's uh, in prayer. But I'm, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know where to go because I think that when you see the power and beauty of what Christ does to your life, you want to share it with the people that you love, and you feel acutely when they reject that. And then, mm-hmm. so just speaking about evangelization and bringing people to Christ, like it breaks your heart. There's a great poem by this guy named James Russell Lowell about St. Michael the Archangel. And he talks about, it's called St. Michael the Weigher, and he's weighing all the fancy, glorious things of our race and all the things regardless outcast few that he just throws on the other scale. And it says, uh, in the other scale I saw him throw, or hmm, the glories of our race, in the other scale he threw things regardless outcast few, martyr ash, arena sand of St. Francis's quarter strand, disillusions and despairs of young saints with grief great hairs and broken hearts that break for man and i think about that i actually tried to write an article with just that quote and i kept kind of stopping halfway through and i ended up just reading and rereading and rereading that poem but that notion of broken hearts that break for man and i think that when you feel acutely someone who's rejecting christ like you and I should feel the burden of carrying the gospel to someone of actually like you're walking with someone, you're accompanying them, like you're hospitable, you're doing all the things. You're not treating them like a project because you love them. And they now that, you know, whatever it is, no, that's not for me or whatever. And it breaks you. The thing that, um, like it, it's good that it breaks you. Because that shows that you love that person and you love our Lord and you want the the two to become one, as it were. But then the next step is like this notion of then you turn to your clergy. And this is to me, I think the biggest heartache is you turn to the clergy in general, right? And now what I think we are going to hear is one after another of bishop after bishop and priest after priest and deacons and whatever else fall. Like, we're going to hear the story of even people we liked turning a blind eye to sexual abuse and assault and moving people around and all that stuff. And I think it's almost the equivalent of evangelizing a soul and then having that soul be like, you know, I was going to join you, but talking to Father so-and-so, they said I didn't have to believe. You know what I mean? Have you ever had an experience like that? Yep. 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 Yeah. So I I had an exact experience of that of someone who went to a deacon And the deacon literally told them to commit mortal sin and said it's A-OK in the eyes of the church. And then she sat in front of me and she said, so are you smarter than the deacon? Do you know more than God's own clergy? And I looked and said, yep. Yep. (laughs) I was like, have you been to the seminary? It is atrocious. And, you know, obviously I made jokes and kind of took out some some of the rage. But her whole thought was, I went to the church. The church told me this. Now I'm just kind of accidentally stumbling onto you. This came up, and you're telling me the opposite. Not only are you telling me the opposite, you're telling me this is going to destroy my relationship with God, the life of charity in my soul, the habitual life of grace. You're wrong. And there is nothing more demoralizing 
than that. Oh, I don't know. Um, Batman Returns was pretty dark. No, but you're right. Again, again, dark. Luke. Again, you're right. Uh, I I don't know what I was thinking. Um, you know, I mean, what could be more demoralizing than actually watching the Justice League and pretending like it makes sense that somehow Avengers Infinity War can balance 27 superhero characters and all their stories, and uh, Justice League can't seem to do that. Once. Yeah. No, but um. Yeah. No, um, again, going back to old ballsy. Um, sorry if people get get annoyed by that. I don't want to offend you. It's just funny. Um, yeah, for the record, for those of you who don't know, I accidentally called Hans Urs von Balthasar old ballsy while I was doing a parent meeting when I was a youth minister. <laughs> it was a total accident. I didn't mean to do it, and then I had to immediately apologize. I've never called him old ballsy. I don't know why I said that. Oh, that was funny. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Now it's a thing that I did it at the Audrey on Tap Talk. Hooray! Hire me. Um, oh yeah, I've done I've done that before too. <laughs> um, so he talks about in uh, Light of the World about how to reject the church's teachings is to reject Christ because you're not em- you're not embracing the fullness of his of his cross because we tend to reject it when it gets hard when it it gets difficult when it, and it's um. I, I I just sometimes have to stop and think how when did okay so we, this is not the scope. when did you meet Will Smith, Smith. <laughs> when did you meet um <laughs> oh Chris Farley or uh, I knew R- I R- knew R- that would get you distracted <laughs> good job um I don't know when it went wrong I I, I know that everyone like everyone loves to say like it was like it was like Vatican II but I, I just don't think that that's true that they, they can't cause that much of of the change um and i wonder if like have any of us truly been presented with the fullness of the christian proposal do we do we really understand all of it and how much of this are we having to relearn because so much of what we have been presented with in the past has either been a uh what is actually a self-projection of what we want Christ, Christianity to be. People love to talk about um, Benedict's thoughts on Christ and evangelization, but very few actually quote his economic writings and his writing on economics and things like that. Uh, well, you see, there was a, a, a gold pen and a red pen, and <laughs> Benedict didn't write any of the stuff that disagrees with George Weigel's uh, conservative economic theories and beliefs. That was a magical uh, papal uh, office or curial office that took a red pen and just wrote some shit in at the last minute, and <laughs> they got that shit printed. Did you ever hear that article, Red Pen, Gold Pen? About, uh, uh, I think so. Yeah, that was. And <laughs> I just remember a guy writing a response, and he's like, where was this in your fancy 10-million-page biography of Pope John Paul that the head of the, of the Social Justice Commission or whatever – Hated Pope John Paul that he was just waiting to sneak in these uh, socialism or something like that. So when we say, kids, that Pope Benedict's authority ended two feet past his apartment door, it apparently also affects how conservatives hear him, too. Well, and, like, that's what I mean. You know, like, how often do we uh, paint, like, uh, oh, my gosh, I've got Balthasar on the brain, my friend. Um 
the aesthetic theological as opposed to the theological aesthetic where um we paint god in our we we basically um, make the church and god what we want him to be as opposed to embrace the fullness of the the teaching of the church to then help inform how we live our lives like how often do you hear about catholic groups who want to create culture or who want to enhance enhance the culture and i actually don't think that's possible cuz culture is the result of a thing and that's and if you look at like benedict he talks about like that they didn't seek to create the west that wasn't the goal of the monks you know back in the like in the early days of europe the goal was to seek the face of christ and be, and from that comes the west it's a it's a one it's one of the it's one of the it's one of the results of their trying to seek the face of the lord and when you try to put the culture ahead of that or like make the culture the end the like like end like result i think it's more about yourself than it is of the lord because what if the lord doesn't he wants everyone. He wants to bring everyone to himself. But what if he doesn't want Christendom right now? Like I, 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 I don't know. Like that might be not his. I, that that could be like that could be wrong. So I don't know. Well, I I think mm, think Gormley think yes. Stroke your cat. Uh, <laughs> one of the <laughs> I just imagine like like uh. You as I want like all like villains or like all people that I'm like on the other line with in a podcast to be like the bad guy from Inspector Gadget. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, when in fact I'm drawing body parts sticking out of a metal garbage can that's on fire with the phrase "I'd Fargo that shit" right next to it, <laughs> illustrating this episode. <laughs> um, no, the the thing that I was going to say when we talk about culture is. Um, there's this, uh, and I mentioned it before when we talked about his book briefly, Why Liberalism Failed. Patrick Deneen talks about how liberalism, modern political economic liberalism, is an anti-culture. And I was talking about this with a coworker the other day, how this argument that modern democratic liberalism is an anti-culture, it, first it makes us radicalize individual or automatized individuals. So it breaks us off from our past, our family connections, you know, we uh, now even our our gender, our sexuality, it discount. You know, you break sex away from creating families, you break it away from marriage and union, and you turn it into a full contact sport. You know, whatever it is, what ends up happening is you are fracturing the individual away from everyone else, and you know, defining them as just this individual little atom, right? And this little individual little atom can create its own wants, needs, desires, or reject them all, and and all this stuff. The idea is, in order to do that, you can't really have culture. And this is a part of my wider study on the notion of culture. You can't really have culture once you treat a person as an individual, as a really radicalized individual. I think the talk of individuality and autonomy from the Enlightenment, the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, I think all of that was kind of wishful thinking of the type of person that now exists, these rootless cosmopolitans who hate their parents and define themselves almost in antagonism to them. And you can't have culture if you don't have a past. 
I mean, think about the devastation of how few people know the past. For most people, 9-11 is ancient history almost, right? Or, or literally, there are people who think ancient history is the founding of America, right? So if you don't have a past, you don't have a culture because you don't have a cultural memory and traditions to keep it alive. So the more we atomize ourselves, the more we replace culture with what? Fashion, as far as I can tell. Pop culture. Music that changes every month, every week. You know, when we talked with Leah Darrow, when she just broke open my eyes to fast fashion, it used to be four seasons, now there's 52 seasons. Every week they're trying to generate new fashion. And I thought of that when I compared it to my Irish and Scottish ancestors, whose the pattern of their kilt determined, not determined, but showed their family line and clan and all that. Did you know that? Like the, the kilts all have mm-hmm. specific patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, look at these lovely pleated colors, right? The, the, <laughs> the plaid was meant for a reason. So when I was plaid. in, <laughs> he's gone to plaid. Hey, Scottish? No. So I, when I was in Guatemala, I, I met all these men who wore very similar clothing as me. And I met all these women, many of whom wore the traditional dress. So we were out in the middle of the rural country area where the indigenous Quiche people lived and all this stuff. We were in this place called Santa Cruz del Quiche. And they told us a story that during the Guatemalan Civil War, which the U.S. funded the murderous side. um, Thanks, Reagan. The murderous side was slaughtering indigenous peoples in the name of anti-communism, which is why they got Reagan money. And they, what they would do is they would line the men up according to the pattern of their traditional costume, their pants. And they could see your tribe and village and lineage from that. And so they would line up all these men and make sure every man in that town who had the same pattern clothing, they would shoot them all in the back of the head so that they knew they wiped out an entire clan or tribe or whatever group they have, right? Good gosh. Right. So that, that, is, that is so sadistic, right? So you have that. You have that image. Now, the men to this day refuse to ever go back to the traditional clothing. So then I started, I I remembered, and and this is where it all kind of ties together. When I was in second grade, we had the alphabet on the wall. And for every letter, they had a country and like a little child representing that country, a little cartoon, silly image. And, but they were wearing the traditional clothing of that place. So it was G for Germany and they were wearing a a dirndl and, you know, lederhosen. And I was like, where's America? Because I looked at the A and it wasn't America. And I said, where's America? You know, what, what's our traditional clothing? And then you go to the U for United States of America, and it's a Native American Indian, uh, probably a, a, a Cherokee, right? So wearing the kind of the traditional dress and that, the headdress of feathers and stuff. And I began thinking, what is our clothing today? It's nothing. It's fashion. It's blue jeans and a T-shirt and all this stuff. And at Vatican II, there's this famous um, statement from a bishop giving an address to the people about how these modern times have changed, and he uses the phrase blue jeans. And you realize everywhere that liberal democracy, modernism has touched, it's killed the culture. Right? Think about it. It's it's Mm. killed the indigenous ways and the only thing that's left so the cultural memory is gone even the original languages for so many like native americans are gone or fading fast because here's the deal culture preserves memory through things like celebration and commemoration every single person you know we talked about world war one at one point 
World War One happened. Uh, what's his name went to Sarajevo in the middle of Prince, them commemorating. Yeah, thank you. Archduke Ferdinand. He went there. He never should have gone when he went. It fomented so much rage because it was in the middle of a commemoration, not a celebration, of a famous battle where they lost their independence to what would become the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it was like the 800-year commemoration. And one of the things about that is look at how it preserves their memory. You know, and a lot of people today are like, you know, um, Arab Muslims are still called Roman Catholics the Crusaders. I don't know if you've ever encountered that. And it's like these ink, these cultures preserve their cultural memories through various things, but we don't. And so we have an anti-culture that's eating away at the culture. And last comment, and I want your opinion on this. Ooh, yeah, I'm watching, good. I'm watching a review, a hysterical Red Letter Media's review, not the Mr. Plunkett thing, but it's called Half in the Bag on YouTube. I love it. I love Half in the Bag. So funny. And not safe for work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, not in the slightest. <laughs> not in the slightest. If it comes but, from us, if, if it's a thing like we like, just assume everyone. Just assume. Sorry, <laughs> it's safe on. to assume we are immoral. And uh, the um, but he makes a comment about reviewing Black Panther. Did you see that one? Uh, yeah, but it's been a while. Okay, so he said the reason why he he was so off put. The very reason why so many people love Black Panther is here's an African culture that's thoroughly African. And yet they're hyper technologized, right? They got futuristic technology and all this stuff. And, you know, they got hovercrafts and all the, uh, you know, everything, right? They have just um, incredible, you know, shields and laser weapons and all this stuff. Uh, and yet the way that they pass on government, government from one person to the next is by brutally beating or killing a guy in a combat to test yeah. their physical strength, right? And then, it, you know, the, the image of them, which is so beautifully done, but it pans up, and you see all the African people in their traditional dress, and, you know, they're dancing on the waterfall after the big technology stuff takes away the water, so it's all exposed rock, and you see this whole thing kind of unfold. And the guy's like, I was so disappointed in that. Like, here's a super advanced civilization. I thought their costume, their dress was like a way to fake out the outside world. But he's like, but you find out that these people really dress like this. And you go to the throne room and you find it's like something out of uh, Game of Thrones. Like, if they're really advanced, why is their culture so primitive? And I was like, see, that's what the scientific mechanistic view of the world does is it yep. destroys our cultural memory. Our history is just a series of data points. It's not preserved shared memory. And that is yeah. what I'm most afraid of. Mm. Yeah. It's funny. So just so everyone's clear, you don't agree with the Red Letter Media guy's point. Because I, I, I had the same thought about that as well. Right. So, I, I mean, obviously, it's funny to have the juxtaposition of oh, sure. ultra tribal primitive culture, you know, what we call primitive, right? What I say primitive, I mean prime, the first culture being preserved alongside a hyper technocratic culture. Like, they don't make sense. I like the juxtaposition because I thought, look, their isolation led them to preserve this. If they expose themselves to the outside world, it'll corrupt not just they'll want to, you know, violence and vibranium in the hands of good people or bad people, but it'll corrupt their way of life. See, that's one of the themes that I think was implicit but not really treated now that I'm, like, kind of dealing with this stuff and looking back on it is their fear was it would destroy their way of life as well as kind of destroy the world by having bad people with vibranium weapons and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. There's a lot here. This is really good. The, the, uh, if you believe there is no purpose and there is no real meaning in the life, which is the cultural belief, let's just all agree on that. You have to find your own. Yeah. And there's, and that's not a, that's just, I mean, like what else would you do? You know, like, so it's not necessarily a bad thing if that's what you believe. And I'm, I'm saying like, I, yeah, I, I think I, I know what you would do. And you ready for this? You'd wake up in the morning. Your teeth by to eat. You'd be an ant marching. Go You're on. gonna make Luke think that Tom's this is good and Tom's it's overrated. Um <laughs> and uh bu- 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 bu. and so and when you have to constantly redefine who and what you are to order to like find meaning to not fall into despair because you have no other option, you're going to go with the newest the shiniest thing because you don't know any better so when you look to the past you see primitive individuals who don't know any better who are doing the best they can with what they have and you see what you have and you see all the stuff that you do that they can't do so why would you hold on to anything from the past you're just going to care about the present because it's all about self reinvention or, or something it's not even about self invention and then reinvention from there and assertion self-assertion right yeah yes yeah I would, yes that's the idea of like, like this, because they don't like what else are you supposed to do like why um and i, I don't it's tough because we're we both ha- like when we when you want to have these conversations with people who don't really agree it's hard because your your like first premise is off so um this is why i think people are so but if they identify as a woman, why can't we respect that? And it's like, well, that's not what I'm saying. You know, but it's, it's, it's just tough because that's all that you have. When yeah. all you have is your own frame of reference for your existence, how could you not think that then? You know, like, why would, and so it's, um, and then the past becomes completely irrelevant and it doesn't make any kind of sense. There's even this, um, there's even this like movement within christianity it's not as big as it was in the early aughts but it's still there to like well the holidays don't mean anything like you can like christmas means nothing easter doesn't mean there's just there's all just like man-made dates and it's all about the like, relationship with god but the problem with that there are many but one of the biggest ones that i've seen is it basically ignores the fact that god has worked throughout history and it's actually counter, it like goes against scripture because scripture is all about the first two thirds of it are all about God working throughout history and what, and like what that looked like. But then to deny our partaking in those things and our like, you know, attempts to understand and to dive into those because it's like man made, um, it's like saying this is a family that I'm a part of, but I'm never going to have Thanksgiving with them. I'm not going to spend time to just be with them because I moved on or something. I don't know. And I mean, th- just think about those like feast days, festivals, all that stuff. They used to be uh, tied to the cult and culture, right? So cult meaning worship, right? tied to the word cultivate, which means what we do to the land to bring forth harvest, right? So there was this rhythmic 
cyclical movement, circadian even rhythm of our lives that was in union and in lockstep with nature. And now what we've done is we've decided to go full board, dominate nature with all of our technology and assert our will over it. So when, you know, food is out of season, we fly it in from the southern hemisphere, right? So that we will never be without watermelon in the middle of January, right? Love it. Love America. (laughs) But this notion of, so then what is Thanksgiving? I mean, Thanksgiving was tied to cult, right? It was tied to this idea of it's time to pause and thank God for the blessings that we have in all of its different ways that it's been interpreted. That's like the cultural understanding of it. We, we are thankful for what we have, but now it's like Jim Gaffigan says, all of our American holiday holidays are just excuses to eat too much food, right? It's uh, like, well, I guess I got to hang out with a bunch of people I hate and spend the rest of the year trying to avoid. Uh, yep. I guess I'm thankful for that. Right. Um, but I, I do, I do think there's something really to this notion that like, just give it enough time and the most sacred day of the year will be stripped away Christmas, right? Easter. What is Easter? Easter with all of that, you can't commercialize the resurrection of Jesus, but you can sure as hell commercialize chocolate Easter eggs and bunny rabbits. So the things that the, the, the pagan sources that have been Christianized and invest with all new meaning are now the things that are hyper commercialized and stripped of all of its previous meaning so that we can sell you an individual atom and experience, right? So now we're back to liquid modernity where we're tourists, not pilgrims. We're going from experience to experience, not moving in a journey of life from beginning to end, right? So there's no forward movement. There's only movement itself on and on. Mm-hmm. There's, um, I think I've brought this up before on the podcast, or I haven't, so sorry. But this idea of, I got this from the Noonday Devil, like we just pass through things as opposed to try to pass seeing beyond them and we don't take what we've what we've what we have experienced and we don't allow that to change our heart to change our like lives to change our minds we just go oh that was fun on to the next thing yeah you know and and it's funny too because i I think that like america for all of her faults and she has many does have a culture and I love that. There are, there are things that are very, um, very American that I really do love. And I think one of the things that stinks about all of this is that's there, but we're never going to acknowledge it, and we're, it's never going to lead to anything. I mean, I, I, I think it's always going to, like, be there, but it's never going to be as powerful as it could be. And that's kind of a bummer. I think it tends to manifest itself in like terms of things that captures the nation's attention, like sports and politics, pretty much. And that's kind of about the only times that it's ever really to it's, that 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 it ever really um, is allowed to come out. I think Trump's uh, or Trump, sorry, a, a news article just flashed up. Um, I think Aristotle, not to be confused with Donald Trump, I think Aristotle's, you know, his in his library of books physics it's politics physics and then metaphysics and it's kind of like when you get rid of metaphysics and the only thing you have left is politics and physics and politics because it concerns thinking conscious beings is obviously higher than just mere physics which all beings have in common 
the reality is when you ditch God, all you have left is politics. And I think that's what we're doing to religion, stripped of actually worshiping God. And that's what we're doing to sports, right? Don't you feel like politics has invaded sports in a way? Like, wasn't sports supposed to be the thing that distracted us from politics? Um, I, I think that's like the the traditional outlook. It was more, I don't think it necessarily that was the point. It was more just there was no reason for it. Well, see, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, human beings love competition, love physical, you know, exertion. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to say that, like, but there's this element where play is its own thing. It's like beauty, right? It's its own thing. It's a, it's it's almost like a transcendental. Yes. Play is for itself, and that's, that's why it exists. That's not true across the board because you have a lot of sports clubs, especially in Europe, that have strong political ties across the spectrum. So, right, but right. But the idea, like I mean, American the core sports, of getting, think, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, uh, I mean, to American sports, I would just say it's purely commercial. But the idea of kids kicking a soccer ball is yeah, yeah, you yeah. can pl- or, or like the sandlot, right? They never really kept score. The game never ended, you know, kind of thing. This notion of there is a uh, and even professional sports or college sports, there is a beauty in this understanding of. Like, it's a game it, in the end of the day, it's it's a man in tights carrying a ball you know, or something like that. Right. <laughs> And the the beauty of it is, and that's all it needs to be. And then you listen to people like Bill Burr, who's a comedian who's obsessed with sports. And he talks about, like, oh, we all have to stand up to cancer now in the middle of the base. Like, I'm watching baseball to get away from the horrors of my daily life. And now I have to stand up to remember all the people I've lost who had cancer. Like, are we doing this? You know, the NFL's wearing pink and you know, all this stuff, <laughs> which is... Uh, like, I feel like, you know, and then Colin Kaepernick, who just made Nike $6 billion. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have all this stuff. It's it's the, you know, and rightly and wrongly, now politics has invaded sports. So there is no, there. I, I just feel like there is no, there is no play for play's sake. So even that's been invaded by politics. Ugh. Like that, I mean, the, the idea that sport provides this cultural relevance. Now it's hyper, I mean, look at FIFA, hyper commercialized, corrupt tons of money people in cultures all over the world still define you know a lot of their sporting experience it's like the olympics are even more important for certain people uh, their national soccer team going to the world cup but at the same time i mean look at it It is corrupt it is violent it is like all this stuff going on behind the scenes that is horrific yeah. yeah when you look at their headquarters where they meet it looks like a bond villains like headquarters it's crazy (laughs) <laughs> like type that into Google, like it's insane. Here we go. Here we uh, go. Type in like FIFA headquarters. FIFA headquarters. It's in Sweden. Is it Sweden? It's, or it's it? in Zurich, in Switzerland. It's it's a glass domed. Actually, you know, the first image looks like <laughs> it looks like um, the Avengers Upstate New York <laughs> facility. Yeah. That's what it looks like. It's just this hey, four stories tall, like a football. It's longer than a soccer field long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Were you able to see the conference room? Oh, no. Let me see. Oh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, that yeah. is a Bond villain. Right? That's a real thing. Oh, Lord help us all. And, I, and again, I, I think just kind of bringing this back to earlier on, culture ultimately is the result of something and the 
um, a culture that we have ultimately i think right now is there is is just one where we don't we don't have meanings so we have to find one and we have to find it as fast as we can and go as all in as we can and so with when there's no christ there's no room for like nuance there's no room for whatever there's only McCarrick. Happy birthday. <laughs> I have coworkers saying that now. It makes me so happy. Um, one of the points of Deneen, Patrick Deneen, in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, is the atomized self, the person stripped of all connections and bonds, is necessary for two things to happen. For the absolute capitalist system to take over, to hyper-commercialize and consumerize everything, and a Marxist statist regime to take over. Like, his argument is Marxism conceived of as kind of like totalitarianism and a um, market economy, in the end, want or foster the same person, the same type of person, which is an atomized, stripped person. If you don't have an inherited, an inherited dignity and identity, then here, let us sell you something that gives you an identity. Right? That's always been a temptation, but now it's an industry. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Marxism, which says that you have no identity unless you're attached to the state politics, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so then you go right back to the same problem where, you know, you it's it's, you know, the hyper politicization of our culture and the hyper commercialization of our culture are all dependent on the atomized self. Well, man abstracted from meaning and history. Mm-hmm. And like this is the thing that kind of drives me nuts about a lot of um, Catholics on the right is because they just want things to go back to the 1950s and they don't see that. Um, what? So Karl Marx wrote the communist wrote the communist manifesto in a while ago, you know, and those ideas have been around for a long time. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that like the stuff that we're dealing with, like they, like the right ignores the past just as much as the left does or the past that they do pay attention to didn't ever actually happen. And I'm sorry. No, why, why would you say that? I, I mean, I agree with you. I actually really, really agree with you, but I want to hear your. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, okay. So why, so I think there's, so there's, um, uh, the, so they tend to view communism as defined by like, the Russians and like the like Russian experience of communism, which was horrible. <laughs> um, and a desire to get back to when like, um, to when like, to when like America was trying to overcome that. And they basically neglect like rerum unavarum, which was when the like whole world was just like wrapped up in this like issue between, uh, between like labor, and, like management, capitalism, socialism and stuff. I believe it's Umbram Navarum, and it's like they don't even like read it. They don't even like like unbother to see like what the Pope had to say at that point in time, and they don't pay attention to the like history of thought that created communism or the uh, like history of thought that led to capitalism. And I don't. I think people don't really understand that these things were hundreds of years in the making, and so where we ended up right now. I really do believe if you were to change everything back to the way it was, say, pre-JFK, it plays out the same way. 
because we were already set up on that course before our country was even started during the enlightenment which you can trace it back to like reformation it all like the like the the if you view it as a thread it already started to unravel this is just like the latest stage and so this desire to set the clock back you know half a century when america was you know like 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 when was america great most people are going to point towards post like post like like post like world war 2 up in like some parts it got bad maybe parts of the 80s you know that's that's the era they want to go back to when you had a catholic church on every corner three priests in every parish People, people, I went to mass and all this stuff, but like the problems of the like postmodern era what were full blown, full effect. Church attendance was actually declining. People were just having more kids, so it seemed like there was growth. When actually there was decline, and the things that set that in motion had been in the works for hundreds of years. That may not have been. Was that concrete enough? Yeah, no, I think okay. it makes sense. Okay. I mean, it was uh, there was this. Now you know what I'm, I'm going to go off into the weeds, but the <laughs> uh, the idea of um, oh, you had said something in the very beginning. Beauty of editing. I'm going to put this out. What did you say in the very beginning of this whole part? We forget our own history. We forget, like, like we selectively remember what is our history. Oh, I know what I want to say. Okay, so what the last thing I want to kind of poke with this I, I hope people find this fascinating do you think people find this fascinating i mean i do so i don't give a crap that's great. <laughs> i mean I, this is the stuff where culture and community collide in our church right so for me what so you had talked about um people they uh, even on the right so on the left yes even on the right yes but in a different mode do we remember history or we only remember the events that we want and we kind of uh it's not actually in the way that it happened and i think it's important to realize um that that's how our narratives are created, right? Like, I am a Republican conservative who wears a tri-corner hat when I go to protest a Democrat politician. Wearing that tri-corner hat says to me, number one, I belong to the modern Tea Party movement. But number two, wearing this stupid hat connects me also to the original Boston Tea Party, where I think that their fight is continually carried forward by my fight. It's mm-hmm. the same fight, different people, different times, same fight. And those are part of the narratives that America has. Now, we all, left and right, share the narrative of freedom. We apply it in different ways. But neither, like, radical autonomy was not a part of the Christian tradition, the medieval church, the you know, Renaissance church even. Um, and so you start to see all this stuff unfold in America today where um, – where we're fighting after, I think one of the things is we're fighting after narratives that give us meaning because we realize that our own narratives, the stories that we tell to ourselves about ourselves to give ourselves some sort of status or permanence or meaning ultimately doesn't hold. So we want to take our identity and hang it on something bigger than us. And we're not going to hang it on our family. We're not going to hang it on our faith. We're not going to hang it on God. And liberalism like is just eating away like a cancer at our culture so we don't have that cultural memory, memory, so we hang it on our political parties. And we ask for our political parties to come and define us, represent us, you know, do all this stuff. 
for us, and we get caught up in the meta narrative of these larger things, right? And so it's like, okay, I am a conservative. That defines, I'm an American conservative. I'm an American leftist progressive or whatever you words people use that define themselves. Um, we use that to attach ourselves to a larger meaning without fully even understanding that. We just want to believe that we're on the side of the angels. We're on the right side of history. We're doing the right thing. But even by doing that, we're not asking the deeper questions like, what does it mean to be right and wrong in a Marxist status regime or in a liberal free market regime? Where, where, where's the ultimate grounding of rightness and wrongness? It's actually one of the reasons why I left libertarianism is because I felt like as a, now it would say it's not a moral framework. It's a political theory about justice in society. And it's justice is rooted in the non-aggression axiom. I don't hurt you. You don't hurt me. If you cause aggression against me, only then am I allowed to use aggression against you. Um, and in a certain sense, you can see this in St. Thomas where he's quoting St. Hilary about what is the purpose of human law. And he says to prevent audacity against one's neighbor, right? So it's like the whole purpose of human law is to restrain that stuff in one sense. But um, yeah, man, the, the more you see it, like these are the stories we tell ourselves and we don't really care about the facts as long as we hit those big notes about the Boston Tea Party and the American War for Independence or the American Revolutionary War, or whatever, even the way we define that, like what we label it kind of hints at the narratives that we desperately cling to. Please define me. Please define me. And in the end, they're an idol. If you let anything other than God mm. define you, that thing is an idol and is not worthy of you, whether it's America, whether it's your family bloodline, your ethnicity, your skin color, right? All of these things that people use, like whiteness was invented so that people could have a higher status against other Europeans and against, of course, you know, African slaves, right? Mm -hmm. So Italians, Greeks, Irish, Scottish, they were not white, European, yeah. even though they were Europeans with the same skin hue as other Europeans. Well, I think that that's one of the reasons why you see people, especially in the um, last half of the 20th century, being willing to be defined by their hatred for people like the Founding Fathers, early American slave practices, things like that, which are all, I mean, there are things that were done that were bad that are like, that are like worth saying, hey, this is wrong. This was not good. Um, but such a willingness to like kind of really cling to that and not see the nuances there. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm scared because postmodernism is one that fosters individual narratives and rejects meta narratives, and to a certain extent, like that's what led to 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 the Nazi regime, right? Was this meta narrative of we are the summation of tw you know two or three thousand years of culture, the Third Reich, even its name, right? We are the Third Empire of Europe, the Roman Empire, Charlemagne's Empire, now Hitler's Empire, right? And in that, they tried to tap into history and all this stuff and wield it like a, a turn history into propaganda. So what propaganda was to the Nazis, a television commercial is to us, right? Or uh, Pravda is to the Soviet regime to prop it up. You know, like the great firewall of China is trying to be, you know, like you, you can go to Hong Kong and, or you can go to Taiwan, right, which China still claims is a part of itself. And you can watch the Tiananmen Square protest, right, where that guy stood against the tank. If you go into the Great Wall of China, if you go the Great Firewall of China, if you get on the Internet in China, you cannot find a single instance of that video. 
right? So they're rewriting history in order to defend a narrative that we belong to the people, mm-hmm. right? And that's scary. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely scary. I tell people when they become, when they join RCIA, I say, becoming Christian is the equivalent to becoming a communist. Everything changes when you do. It's a really big freaking deal. And you end up seeing the world completely differently when you enter this thing. And people will look at you and treat you differently when you walk around and saying, I became a communist last week. I became a Christian at Easter. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you got to think of it as the same thing. It's not just a thing I do for an hour on Sundays. <laughs> and the Pope just made a bunch of Chinese bishops, bishops. Oh, gosh. Patriotic um, Association Church. It's, is, it's so difficult. I know. Oh. I need actually I have a guy that I want to bring on the podcast to interview about that. Um, I, yeah, I think is. Is this a good place to stop? I feel like we can keep going, but I feel like oh, you want to change up the uh, change up the cultural narrative. <laughs> you want to change up the meta narrative? <laughs> oh, oh, boxes. Here's <laughs> do I ever? Um, no, I wanted to ask you. Do you think that we are in a like? So you basically have okay. So when would you say that a modernity ends? Uh, so uh, so kind of traditionally from Catholic thinkers, modernity as a system still actually endures, but. Post-modernity began in the in the World War II. So, yeah, so basically how the modernity ends with, I'd say the beginning of the end or the culmination of it is the first is the first World War to the end of the second World War. Then you enter the postmodern era. I wonder if right now, if this is going to be defined as the post-Christian era, because mm. I really do think that post uh, the same post like same sex marriage is being like being like legalized that's when and, and i'm not saying that like uh, oh gosh what am i trying to say here i'm not trying to say that uh okay who cares i'm just saying that's a point in time i think when really we fully that the west here in america goes full post-christian and that christian ideas and ideals and even the christian pro proposal starts to feel anti uh the culture like it is fully now out of the culture yeah i just wonder if that's gonna that will be the moment i really do because i like for example i would say that's when the 21st like look at how much things have changed in the past three years since that since that happened um I, i i think history will look back on and say that's when the 21st that's really when the 21st almost century began they might that's, say that's the new millennium that's yeah. the new millennium yeah and the they might age. say 2008 but i feel like 2015 is really when like the culture itself makes a, a shift and so perhaps that's when it begins that's when the kind of i don't know and i so anyways I, I i just propose that we are now completely post post christian and um I don't know if I mean of course God can do anything. I just think right now our main thing might not be to really try. Of course we want to evangelize the culture, but that has to come out of a desire to seek the face of Christ first and uh to allow our faith to impact the culture. Which is why I have issues with the Benedict option, but we'll talk about that later cuz I need to read this nice person's book. <laughs> Uh, there's so much to talk about there. There's a, a critique of Patrick Deneen, 
by saying he doesn't go far enough, you can't create a subculture outside of culture, which is kind of like the Benedict Option proposition. You can only go into the heart of that culture and change it there. And this guy puts money where his mouth is because he's teaching at Harvard. Can't remember the dude's name. Um, and who's writing this response. So he says, yes, liberalism failed and is failing us right now. But no, you can't then go off like St. Benedict and create your own monasteries outside the culture. You have to change it from within. And um, I, I don't know if I agree with that at all. I don't know if I agree with that at all. Let's wait because when we have her on, on the podcast, I want to be able to dive deeper into that because I have. You want to have Leah Labresco on the podcast? Yes, I thought we were going to. I, I would love to, but I don't know now that she's been named a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. Oh, nice. Just to let you know, they interviewed me to be a fellow in the Word on Fire Institute. Did they say no? Uh, well, I mean, as for me finding out via this <laughs> <laughs> this email, apparently crappy. they said no. It's kind of crappy. <laughs> no one ever called to tell me, hey, buddy, you suck. Hey, thanks for um, filling out that, that application, but never mind. Baron has no use for you. <laughs> Bishop Baron would love me. He would love me. Um, <laughs> did I? <laughs> I think he would. I, uh, I want everyone out there in podcast land to know that I hung out with Brandon Vaught, and it was awesome. I feel like we're becoming buds. So it was very, very good. Pretty soon he's going to get your phone number. You guys are going to hang out after school. Catching foxes, bringing people together since 2017. <laughs> bringing people together since basically this couple weeks ago. <laughs> he actually reached out to me to tell me to tell you hi. And then to tell me that my SSL security certificate was not loaded for a podcast and Google wouldn't link us. Whoopsies. Oh, what a nice guy. What a nice guy. Yes, every so often, really nice. He's super nice. Every so often we exchange like, hey, here's a podcast tip. I listened to Bishop Barron. His audio was terrible. Maybe do this. And he's like, hey, thanks. Hey, maybe when you're recording audio with guests and it's, you know, going to be crappy, maybe use this. And they have their system that they use. Same one that Tony uses for uh, the Threshold Podcast. Um, well, I was going to tell you one more thing. Uh, on our Apple podcast, the cover art for all the podcasts is the old people sex. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's our number one episode. It's literally that one on like all so like every time anyone has an Apple podcast, like listens to our podcast on Apple podcast, which is the most used one. That's the cover. Art. Okay. Let me see if I can reflect. <laughs> so, you know, I can't imagine why our, uh, why our downloads tanked six weeks ago. Oh, and they're fine to everyone. Don't worry. They're f back to normal. We're good. We're fine. We're beautiful. <laughs> Uh, what is um, hey, so if people want to if people want to connect with us, where can they find us, buddy? Oh, you can find us at catchingfoxes.fm. We pay good money for that .fm. So catchingfoxes.fm. You can find our podcast there. Go on any podcast catcher of choice, Google Store, iTunes. I recommend everyone get Overcast. Luke, you use Overcast. Use Overcast now? Yeah, I, I was on Downcast, but I wanted to try Overcast, and I did, and I and I liked it. There was one part that I liked. What Downcast can do that Overcast cannot do is, oh, I think they changed it now. Never mind. It's love. It's yeah. love. <laughs> I bring you love. He brings us love. Break his legs. 
Oh, uh, yeah, that's awesome. So you can find us there. You can go on Facebook.com slash Catching Foxes Podcast. Uh, or you can find Luke on Twitter at TheLukeV, me at Lay Evangelist, and the podcast at Catching Foxes CF, po- CF Podcast at CF Podcast. Search Catching Foxes what? on Twitter. Oh, yeah. What I'm sorry. <laughs> I zoned out. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> at C Foxes Podcast. At C Foxes Podcast. Uh, we're on Instagram at Catching underscore Foxes. I barely check it because I'm almost convinced that Instagram is wrong. We shouldn't be on there. Um, oh, apologies to everyone who has like reached out. We haven't gotten back to Although I think I've gotten back to everyone who wanted to talk to me. It's been a crazy few weeks. So, uh, but... Things will slow down after next week. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for your messages. Sometimes we don't get to all of them. We try, but I've noticed sometimes we don't. So, sorry. Yeah. Alrighty, y'all say classy. Uh, see you later. Oh, oh, thank you. T- oh, what? big, big, big thank you to all of our new supporters on Patreon. We just broke the 200 mark. So, thank you guys very, very much for that. That is freaking awesome. <laughs> One of uh, them is my dad. Oh, Don. <laughs> <laughs> 